The Lab takes the ethereal to the practical. Our podcast acts like a business school case study for private equity professionals, CEOs, operating partners, and chief transformational officers. We all know transformation is the key to differentiated alpha. Here's how you actually do it. Our audience tunes in to learn from those in the field, getting their fingernails dirty and driving meaningful growth through better operations, technology, and data. We learn from going to business school, teaching at business schools, and applying these lessons in the real world that case studies actually help the insight stick better. Come join us. All right, welcome back to another episode of the podcast here. We're super excited to have Garrett, Garrett Blank with us today. It's not every day you get to speak to a, a you know, world-class investor and talk about all of the secrets of private equity. Of course, I'm joking, but it, he, uh, we're very lucky to have him on. And I, I thought what we would talk about today is for a couple of different topics, how do you actually stand out if you want to be a PE-backed executive? How do you do that? And what, what are private equity firms really thinking about or what are they reviewing? But before we do that, you know, maybe Garrett, give a quick background on on you and your, you know, sort of what you've done to date, and then we can dip into some of these specific questions. Yeah, thank thank you so much, Scott, and I really appreciate you having me on. I've listened to another a couple of your other episodes, and there was one with Don at Fire and Life Safety, and it was really fascinating to hear about his role through his lens. So I appreciate you covering all angles here. You know, I, I've spent the last ten years in the private equity world as an investor in the middle market focus both on the buyout and minority investment world. You know, just to put some numbers to it, you know, I've closed 14 new platform deals, but almost evenly between majority and minority deals. And in almost all cases, we were the only institutional capital, even in those minority deals. And with each of these, I've worked closely with the management teams of those companies to provide a sounding board, help them make strategic decisions and handle financial capital decisions with them as well. Well, that's great. I mean, I think not only it was fun to, you know, the, the great thing about the world of M&A is you get connected to people that you didn't even know before. You and I grew up pretty much next door to each other and didn't know about it, but we got to this world and now we're spending a lot of time together. So it's, it's great. And, you know, how does someone who, who wants to be in this world of, a, you know, being a PE-backed executive, how do they get it done, right? Because there's people that are very smart. They spend 20 years plus 30 years, whatever, burning calories in whatever subsector of the economy they spend time in. And it's great to make base. It's great to make bonus. And But at some point, you want to make the non-linear economics around equity. That's one of the wonderful things about private equity. So how do you sort of, if you could give advice to someone who wanted to get in and be a PE-backed executive, how do they stand out? How do they prove that they're someone that you and your colleagues within the private equity world would want it back? Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there are sort of two parts to that question. Is One is, how do you position yourself as a PE-backed executive? And then how do you get in front of the right PE firms? You know, I think if you just take to answer that first question, you know, I think it's important to look for executives who have, you know, clear direction and a track record or a proven track record on creating a strategy and executing on those plans. You know, at the end of the day, a private equity firm is not in the business of operating a business day to day. So it's really important for them to hire somebody that they can trust that has a well-established network and has a similar vision to them with a skill set that can make their life easier. 
you know, there, there are multiple ways to run a business also. So it's really important that you as, not you, Scott, but you as the listener, the potential executive, it's important to make sure that, that there's alignment there because, you know, what works for one private equity firm may not be the same as a strategy for another. So for example, an executive that has no acquisition history may not be a fit for a firm that tends to be very acquisitive, but may be a great fit with one that's more focused on organic growth. And on a personal level, I think the private equity world is looking for executives who are extremely intellectually curious people with the confidence in themselves to pull it off, while also being willing to be collaborative with the firm you're working with. And I think that's a really important difference between working in a larger company or working with a a founder-owned business and working with a a company that's PE back, because when you're operating operating within a company that has a PE backer, you know, you're not the only person making those decisions, even if you are the CEO. You know, decisions need to be made collaboratively and may not be as made may not be made as quickly as they were before, which at times can be frustrating. So I think PE firms are looking for executives that have the patience and flexibility to work within those confines. And so how do you ask some of those questions? I mean, what questions would you ask I me? Mean, because to the uninitiated, I mean, those are all really good points. And someone will say, we like to back executives or we, you know, we try not to get too involved with there if you need us, but not, you know, what are some things that if you were an executive based upon the, you know, all the deals you've closed, you, you closed on over a dozen, but that means you looked at hundreds and hundreds and said no to a bunch. So, you know, any particular things that you, if you, you should listen for to help you decide, you know what, this is a firm that's right for me. And then that goes to economics too. Like, you know, every firm is different if it's a $5 million EBITDA business or $500 million EBITDA business, but any thoughts around hot buttons on comp? Yeah. L- let me answer the, the first question first is, you know, what, before you partner up with a, a private equity firm, you know, what, what questions should you ask? And I think it's important to understand that not all private equity firms are built the same. You know, there are thousands of private equity firms out there that have a variety of different strategies. And, you know, there are the obvious ones, such as, you know, do I like the partner or the investment team that I'm working with? Like that should be number one. If you, if you don't like the people, then then you know you you probably shouldn't be we only have one life to live and we might as well do it with people that we enjoy and you know beyond just that sort of initial culture question you know there are operational questions that you should ask such as you know who is managing the company from the investor side you know some firms have separate teams that do the deal and then monitor them so it's important to know who who you're going to be dealing with on a day-to-day basis how active is the investing team, investment team in managing the day to day? Do they have an operations team and when do they utilize them? I would encourage executives looking to join a, a PE backed company or if they're getting acquired by a company to speak with the operations team because in the event of a downside or in the event of strategic decisions, that team may get more involved. And I think it's important that you can build a relationship with them. Early on, and I can tell you of the of the all the deals I've closed, only one person has asked that. But I think it's an important question. You know, other questions such as you know, what's a normal communications cadence? There are some folks that have weekly meetings 
There are some that have monthly meetings or some that have quarterly. And it really can change the way in which you're running your business if you are you know, constantly preparing for the next meeting. And then I think a very important question is, what's the strategy for the business and does it align with yours? You know, I mentioned this in the, the first question you asked, but you know, is it acquisition focused? And you know, do you believe that it should be acquisition focused? Is the idea expanding into new markets? You know, there are a number of ways, you know, in a sell side process, there may be five private equity firms towards the end and all five may have different strategies. So understanding which one best aligns with your strategy, I think is best. And then, you know, there are structural questions as well, such as how much debt is on the business or if it's a new deal, how much debt are they anticipating putting on the business and how much dry powder does the PE firm have in reserve? Because this will help answer, you know, the acquisition strategy, how much you'll be able to invest in the business to, to expand organically and what happens in a down year. If the business is very heavily levered, they may not be able to invest the same dollars in a down year or have to make cuts. And I'd, I'd also encourage you to, to understand the lender in the deal. This is another question that, that executives very rarely ask because they may think that all lenders are built equally. But the reality is they're not. You know, there are a variety of different lenders and there are also a variety of different relationships between lenders and private equity firms. So, you know, for example, in, you know, in my roles, there's, I had half of my deals with a single lender. And in that situation, if there's a downside situation, there's leverage that private equity firms can apply to that lender to make your life a lot easier. And means that you may not have to make the heavy cuts that you would if it was a much more aggressive lender. And I think there was a second part to that question. Was it around compensation in terms of like what you should ask for? Yeah, I think there's base and bonus, right? And then, but then the equity is that what everyone hears about. And what does that really mean? Because there's, you can get the same class of shares as the PE firm, different class of shares, you know, how do the waterfall work? None of that we could get into a whole lot of depth because the answer is it depends. But, you know, what are some just quick things to think about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even before we get to the incentive equity, I think it's under- important to understand on your bonus side as well, how much of it is in your control and how much of it is based on company's performance and how much of it is based on the board's discretion. Because, you know, they'll stay within the con, the board will stay within the confines of, of those three components, but that can make a difference as well. And that's a negotiated point that often happens too. And on, on the incentive equity, you mentioned it, it comes in a variety of flavors. And, you know, I wouldn't expect everybody that's joining a PE backed firm to understand all of the nuances of, of incentive equity, you know, just to give a couple of flavors, you know, some firms may the performance time-based, some of them make it performance-based, some have boosters at different performance levels. You know, you may hear firms say they have a 10% management pool, but 10% of what? You know, sometimes that's 10% of the proceeds above 1x the return of investor capital. So when they get their money back, sometimes it's split where, you know, 50% of that or 5% of that 10% is comes at 1x, sometimes half of that comes at 2x. So what I'd encourage people to do is ask for a working Excel spreadsheet where you can plug in different exit values 
and see you or if you're the CEO in certain cases, your team's payout to understand how flexible the incentive equity is. And you can all be in agreement and alignment that what you expect to get is what you're going to get. I love that. You know, I, I really appreciate that we're talking from the executive side of the house, but let's, let's pivot a little bit because you have experience, obviously, from the PE side. Let's go inside the financials of the deal. We're all familiar with the buyout, the minority growth equity, structure equity. I'd love to just hear your approach on, you know, the typical private equity deal and how that structure comes to be. What factors influence the equity debt split and the other key terms? Yeah, it's a really good question. And you know, this is where the private equity world is a little bit more art than science because, you know, there's a number of ways to, to structure a deal. And, you know, there's debt determinations that can be restricted on both the lender side where they're not willing to give more debt, but there's also restrictions from the equity side where depending on the strategy they want to have, they may look to reduce the debt up front and instead save some of that debt capacity to be used at a later date. The, the more levered a business is, the more reliant they are on short-term cash flow, especially in today's day and age where interest rates are extremely high and make in, in short-term growth because there are covenants that need to be hit in order to stay within compliance of a debt agreement. So the less debt you have, the more freedom you have to operate the business as best you see fit. So as a PE firm who has a five-year long horizon, let's say, they may realize that the business needs to invest in the next couple of years and therefore shouldn't be a fully levered business. They should build in the flexibility to maybe even reduce EBITDA in the short run and reduce cash flow in the short run because they know that they'll be better positioned in the long run. In your experience, how have the changes in the economic climate today, right? How have they impacted the structure of deals? Because, and I'm, I'm assuming it's good they're anticipating the future changes will also be instructing, you know, impacting deal structure. One of the, the funny things before you answer that I've kind of noticed just talking to a lot of people is, it was so good. And then all of a sudden it was so bad. And it's kind of like moving the Titanic, you know, these, these monster equity firms that for them to avoid disaster, they have to be in front of it. So I'm assuming there's forecasting that goes into this, but also you got to be able to react, react on the fly. Yeah, there is. And I can tell you that no private equity firm expected interest rates to be where they are today because they're, they, they would have structured deals very differently. I mean, you're seeing certain deals that are acquisition strategies that you know may have closed their latest acquisition right before the interest rates started to rise, right before lenders started to be a lot more conservative, and right before they started to focus on cash flow concerns. And those businesses have needed to adapt. So you're seeing a lot less debt being put on businesses. You're seeing acquisition strategies changing because you're not able to get the what's called a delayed draw facility from lenders, which is what enables companies to very quickly acquire businesses without as many hurdles. So, you know, a lot of businesses that, you know, maybe were consolidators that were acquiring a series of mom and pop shops, 
are not as attractive today as businesses that are or, that are organic growers and are able to do it with without the necessity for incremental debt. As you said, everything the only thing that's consistent is change. So, you know, PE firms themselves have changed. And so how do you think about that, not just from the capital structure, but from the specialization? You know, there used to be generalist firms. There was the, you know, where maybe most of the firms were, we, we just are trying to do good deals and buy companies at a reasonable price and improve them. It feels like there's more and more specialization. That can be firms that only invest in healthcare companies or only invest in logistics businesses, or it can be firms that do different things, but have teams that only work in certain subsectors. How are you thinking about that? Because, you know, if an individual is looking to be a PE-backed executive, they want to make sure that, you know, what they're doing is regular and customary. And maybe the PE firm, hopefully the PE firm, has seen a lot of mistakes being made in the past, as we all make them, but maybe avoid more of them going forward because of that specialization. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's an interesting market, the private equity market, because more money has flowed into the private equity market, which you would think is a good thing. And in some respect, it is. But more companies, that just means there are more private equity firms out there, and therefore more private equity firms are competing for the same assets. You know, if you think of demand and supply, you know, the companies are the demand, and that's, or I guess the companies are the supply, and that's been the that's that's sort of fixed. It's not as if more companies are existing and the demand for those companies has gone way up as there's more dry powder for the same assets. So it's making it significantly harder for generalist private, private equity firms, which was a really popular model years ago because there were just fewer companies out there. So fewer private equity firms. So there were there was an ability to expand further outside of what you know extremely well. You know, but now we're seeing generalist firms not go away. The firms are still there, but they are creating, Scott, what you mentioned, individual teams to to break that down and make it as if they are smaller specialists. And it's for a few reasons, but, you know, just to name a few, for one, bankers don't need to run the broadest sell-side processes that they did before because the market is so efficient, especially for the strongest companies. Because they know if they go out to 10 companies, somebody is going to pay a full value for that business. It doesn't take a hundred private equity firms to create the correct auction process. So they're going to go to the 10 to 15 best buyers for that, for that business. And in that situation, the generalists are not going to make that cut. It's going to be a little bit too long to get them up to to speed. And they don't come to mind as the right buyer for that specific business if they don't already own or have already owned a, a business in that space. And, and you know, two is so much of this industry is who you know and what you know. And that's where the differentiation comes from. You know, it's you know, everybody can pay the same price for businesses and sell it for the same price, but to really make outsized returns in the private equity model, it it really comes from what can you do in the interim? You know, the who and what you know determines the quality of executives you can get to join the board, determines how much you know about a company outside of what the banker tells you, determines how you can set up an appropriate strategy for the company that will best benefit it, best benefit it in the long run. 
you know, as, as an example, I had a company there, it was a business that was for sale and it was a competitor of a portfolio company of ours. And we knew that their largest customer, one of their largest customers was leaving. And we knew before the, the company for sale knew because they were coming to us. So, you know, that, that told us to steer clear of, of that company. And if you're not in the day to day of that industry, you may not know things like that. You know, the person that bought that business probably overpaid. You know, they certainly could have done well on that business, but you know, cause anyone can do well on one deal. There's an element of luck in any deal, but you know, for long term sustainable or success, it requires you to know more about the industry that you're operating in than the vast majority of other private equity firms or the competitors that you're competing with do. And maybe that's like the, the life cycle of a deal, right? I mean, if you put it into three buckets, bucket one is what should I buy? Fine. Bucket two is identified something. Should I buy it? And bucket three is, okay, now that I've, I own it, I got to actually do what I said I was going to do in the investing committee and, you know, help grow the company. And using, coming back to our first question about executives, helping, helping a PE firm be the best buyer is seeing around corners along that life cycle of a deal, not just, Hey, do you want to run this business? Because our current CEO is not doing a great job. And, you know, it's nice to be involved in that whole process so you can make a more informed decision and come back full circles and make the game firm, you know, one of the preferred buyers so that they're getting more looks and making better decisions. Totally. And it's, it's rare that, you know, that I saw or, you know, other private equity professionals saw books and were learning about a company for the first time. You know, there is, there's an element of knowing, having to know what is out there in order to be the best buyer for it. Because these processes happen quick. Like the ability to, the ability to make a quick decision with conviction that you're good, that allows you to be the highest bidder requires you to have known about or, you know, know of at least the, the business beforehand. So, you know, working with executives, having a stable of executives that you can point to, even if you're not working with them on a day to day basis, you have a network of executives. And I think it's important as an executive to, you know, be in a stable of a variety of private equity firms. You never know when the right private equity firm is going to come across looking for the right, the right asset that fits your skill set. And they are you know, notoriously hot and cold because there is plenty of things to steal their attention on a day to day or a week to week basis. But when there is something that they could see you helping with you, the executive, they will you know, be able to use that in a way that benefits everybody, both the executive and the firm in both the short term and the long term. You know, I think we've so far, this has been fantastic. I, I love putting the expert on the spot on the way out, you know, a little expert subjectivity. We've talked about experiential, all these things, you know, the answers to. I want to say, what's next? What do you see changing? You know, we know the economical trends right now. They're, they're challenging. What do you see short and midterm in the private equity landscape? And how do you anticipate it? You know, maybe shaking up a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting landscape out there. You know, we talked about the, 
the leverage or the the interest rate hikes and how that's played a role. And I think it's going to be very interesting and really important to understand what's going to happen. You know, if if we are operating in a world with higher interest rates for a longer period of time, I think it's it's going to create a different private equity world than we've seen before. There are going to be more troubled situations. There are going to be more, you know, in some respects, forced sales during during this time. There's going to be a lot more non-cash equity or non-cash debt being put on businesses because the you know the the cash flow burden of interest rates at this height are 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 going to create a, a a larger and larger burden as companies continue to to go forward. Yeah, I haven't seen a pitch book article yet on on they I've seen plenty on the slumping of the buyout market, but I haven't seen the uptick in the carve out market, but I expect that we will eventually. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. It it, it has to be. Like there are I know lenders are nervous. You know, I talk to lenders that 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 are very nervous and you like to think that that they're the, the private equity and lenders in some respect are partners in this thing too, because one can't be happy while the other isn't except in downside situations, which is not a situation that anybody wants to, wants to be a part of. And the, you know, the second thing that's happening sort of in the private equity world holistically is, and this isn't a surprise. This isn't a hot take, but the ESG is becoming significantly more important. For folks that have Europe, the, the Europeans are probably five years ahead of the U.S. investors, the the LPs, in you know sculpting ESG platforms and making that a priority for their GPs, being the private equity firms. So as a result, you're starting to see more private equity firms focus on ESG of not just their portfolio companies, but prospective portfolio companies which is sort of moving all the way down the chain to companies that are aspiring to be acquired by private equity firms will now have an incentive because they will probably get paid more if they have some sort of ESG bend to them or if they've already made that conversion, already reporting the metrics on on that side. Awesome stuff. Yeah, I, I think to, to those two points, I mean, one around the carve-outs, I, I an executive, a public traded company executive say to me, you know, the average tenure of a publicly trained CEO is plus or minus two and a half to three years on average, right? So you've got eight to 10, 90 day sprints to go do something. And a lot of that is carving things out because they need their stock price to go up with their Machiavelli. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we'll, we'll see where all that goes. And ESG, it used to be we have to do it because it seems right. Or it's the right thing to do. We've seen a lot of metrics actually that are directly tied to higher margin, more revenue and growth, just using ESG as a way to do that. So like anything, the more it makes money, the more it takes off and takes hold. And I think you're right that, you know, we've seen a lot of that traction originally, you know, a little bit ahead in Europe, but in the US too, that those metrics aren't just feel good, they're make more money. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's, it's awesome to have you on and, you know, we're excited that you spent time with us and we appreciate it. We hope the, those that are listening, they got a pretty unique view on maybe they weren't necessarily asking the questions, but getting the answers to the things that they would love to hear about. And so it means the world to us. And obviously we appreciate you spending time with us. 
Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Gary. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Now, Scott, something you might not know about this podcast is I, I really like this outro. I get to ask you some softball questions for you, but I always learn a little bit. So especially with your unique perspective. So I heard Garrett say something in there about CEOs or executives not asking a lot about the operating team. And I clung to it. I was like, wow, that's, he said one of the 14 that he's done. Tell me about that because you're in the room where it happens with all these guys, whether placing the operating partners or the executives that the operating partners support. That was unique to me. I was surprised. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with sometimes just human nature, right? When you hear something that you think you're supposed to know, you sort of just say, yeah, okay, I guess that's, you know, whatever, you know, terms that I'm getting must be normal, right? I don't know what this means. It's too esoteric. It's too this, too that. So I think what he said is what we do all the time is when we, for, for us, when we're making that offer for an executive, it, it's sort of like a sensitivity analysis. He called it a working Excel spreadsheet. Like, what are the two or three or four assumptions that I need to believe that's going to make scenario one or two or three or four more likely? So, you know, in other words, I'm going to make two times the money, four times the money, six times the money, right? Everyone is like Pete Rose. They want to bet on themselves, right? <laughs> So, but things happen and it's out of your control. So how can you tie the returns to some belief? I, we need to acquire 16 companies or I'm making that up, obviously, to get to the goal of six times our money. Well, are there 16 companies out there? Are there 32? Are there 1,000? Like, how do I pressure test the inputs to the model that gives me more clarity on what we're going to do? And oh, by the way, I hear, you know, and like para pursue, what does that even mean? It's some, you know, crazy Latin term. But how do I just ask questions of, hey guys, if you make, you know, if the firm makes X, how much do you make and how much do I make? And it's not rude or it's not irresponsible to, to Garrett's point. Those are good questions to ask. And surprisingly, and uh, he knows best, most people don't ask them just because they it. It, it, you know, they should know it already. Yeah, I, I, I get that. It's just, it was surprising to hear it from his perspective because I guess you kind of put these people on pedestals, but oftentimes they're walking into rooms of alphas and they, you know, they want the gig and, and sometimes you gotta, you know, fake it till you make it from a knowing everything. But when you think about compensation, I can see really getting critical there, but I, I, I still go back to like, asking about what support do I have inside this PE firm and how are they going to line me up for success and what's the operating partner structure and how are they going to you know, fuel my efforts? You know, I think, I hope executives listening to this, think about that when, you know, the next time they're in that room. Well, I think to your point, it's interesting when you talk to an executive who's been PE backs before. Well, they get it. All day long. And if you talk to someone who's been PE back twice, before, of course, even more interesting because what they'll say, they've had one opportunity with a PE firm and it either went well or it didn't. And if it didn't go well, like, oh, PE firms are the worst or just like I read about in, I don't know, Barbarians, the Gate of Yourself or Pick Your you know, Book. But actually, there, there, there's hundreds of versions of PE firms. And it's also not PE firm A versus PE firm B, which is important. It's partner A versus partner B at that same shop. 
And that's the nuance that you need to get into by asking those questions. To your point about support and support services and operating partners and all the different things that you and I spend time talking about and working with in our day-to-day jobs, the more questions you can ask, to your point, hopefully someone will you know, listen and learn and make one less mis- mis- mistake as they go through this. Awesome. Well, again, hopefully you guys learned something there. It was great having Garrett and his expertise on, you know, maybe you're sitting by the pool listening to the lab to cool down. We'll be back with another one real soon. It's a hot one out there. <laughs>